Welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany, and all without mentioning Vorsprung Dirk Technik. I'm Nick Houghton of 40percentgerman.com, and I'm joined by my co-host Simon Maddox, who is currently filling up on Mittelschaf Senf. So Simon, a bit hungry, are you? Um, it's, it's, it's been uh, an interesting week, uh, culinary-wise for me. Uh, obviously, a yeah, home office means a lot of sandwiches during the day, just to sort of get through, uh, and I've developed a penchant for some Mittelschaf Senf, which is yeah, a medium spicy mustard. Um, the other day I had a craving for a real German meal, so I made Nürnberger breakfast, the little Nürnberg sausages. That's how you do. With some uh, kartoffel brie, mashed potato, uh, and some sauerkraut, like mm. proper classic. And for that I needed mustard. Uh, you can't serve that meal without it. And so as soon as I had some, I was like, okay, that's what I'm eating for the rest of the week. Mm-hmm. Uh, so every sandwich just had milk shaft mustard in it. So yeah. It's, every uh, sandwich? Yeah, I, I'm weird like that. I have like cycles with food um, where I'll just eat one thing exclusively as like my snack. Mm-hmm. Um, I had um, a chocolate covered raisin season this year for about two months where nice. that's the only snack I ate. Um, and uh, yeah, well, we're going to talk more about food later. Yeah, yeah, of uh, course. And, and, and my dietary issues <laughs> no i mean I, i'm the same I, i'm i'm constantly stuck on pfeffer baiso which are for mm. the english listeners or english-speaking listeners we've got uh basically it's like a dried meat stick which doesn't really like make it sound very nice but um for british audiences you might know the pepper army it's kind of like that but you know a hundred times better um and the chili ones you get in the the butchers here are so amazing that basically lunch isn't lunch unless i have at least one of those bad boys so yeah i understand that that desire to keep eating the same thing over and over again when it's good it's good why 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 ruin a good thing yeah totally so i had a very German experience only about 30 minutes ago. This is hot off the press. It's hot off the press. I was walking through the mean streets of Augsburg, which is to say not very mean and very middle class. And what I, I've got an appointment tomorrow for my um, um, personnel Ausweis. So to pick up or to, to start the process of getting the personnel Ausweis. Uh, I've already got my citizenship, but I need to get the documentation that you have to carry around with you. And what is required for a personal Ausweis is, of course, a photo, but not any old photo. You need a biometric photo uh, for any passports nowadays. Now, Simon, if you were to get a biometric photo, what would you? How would you go about getting a biometric photo? Do you think if you were in the UK? If I was in the UK, I'd do what I always used to do, which was go to the post office. Um, they were, as far as I know, like the the benchmark uh, for photo. Uh, for passports and the like, so I'd assume they'd handle that. Yeah, um, and, and would you expect uh, to do that in some kind of booth, perhaps? Uh, I, if I had only lived in England, yes, I would. Yeah, uh, <laughs> impressive that, isn't it? You'd think, right, the photo booth is not particularly new technology. It has existed since, I don't know, what, like the 19, 1950s, 1960s? <laughs> I have no idea when photo booths were released. I could Google it, but I'm not going to do that to your listeners. In <laughs> Germany, they don't have that process for some inexplicable reason. I'm sure there's a very German reason. I'm sure someone will tweet at me. But for some unknown reason, but an actual person has to come and take a photograph of you with, a, uh, with, a, with an actual camera. You would think that that was already quite insane, but not everywhere does them. So in this instance, I had the choice of going to photographers, 
like a professional photographers, which would have cost me a grand total of 15 euros. Or I could go to DM. We talked about Rossman last week. DM is very much like Rossman. It's a, a boots without the pharmacy um, or one of these sort of drug stores, basically. And uh, I went there and I had this weird interaction where you've got the guy who's running the place, uh, who's running the little photo area, is basically overloaded by various people who are trying to get photos and I'm trying to get his attention. And the way a British person gets someone's attention is to do what? Stand quietly waiting. <laughs> and I'm getting furious because no one's acknowledged me, right? He hasn't acknowledged me, so I'm just standing there waiting. So I silently just going nuts inside. Outwardly very calm. <laughs> and then and then I just it, it's those moments where you realize, oh, actually, this is a completely terrible strategy. Like a young a young woman behind me just walked straight past <laughs> us to the guy and went and shuldergung and then asked him a question, like, excuse me, and like got his attention. He started talking quite happily. And I was like, I looking around going, oh, oh, right, yeah, I'm in Germany. I actually need to be quite direct here. I can't just wait for, for him to be acknowledged. So I went up to them and I was like, I was like, and shuldergung? And he's like, yes, sir. <laughs> so that's, so, oh God. And it's that thing of like, you, people complain about customer service. And often I think it's just, we just don't, interact in the same way uh, i was expecting british customer service where you get an acknowledgement someone goes oh i'll be with you in a moment sir. <laughs> that doesn't really happen in germany you've actually got to cut through the uh, politeness and just speak directly and i'm always i'm just terrible at that i'm the worst at that it doesn't come naturally to us i, I definitely sympathize with this this instinct of, of standing quietly in the corner trying not to take up space mm -hmm. exactly uh, is, is a very strong instinct for us uh, a flash of eye contact often doesn't register here or isn't understood as the same signal as it would be in a, in a, in a British shop. Um, yeah, a roll of the eyes uh, lacks the, the messaging. Uh, that a we're strong exhalation. <laughs> <laughs> Tutting. I haven't heard a tut in so long, um, apart from when it comes out of my own mouth. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah. It has no and Nobody cares. No, of course doesn't, not. No. No. Subtlety. Or at least British subtlety, which is to say to do absolutely nothing and just wait for something to happen is, is a total non-starter. So anyone, anyone who's moving from Britain to, to Germany in, at any time, just remember you've got to actually force the issue. You can't just wait and hope to be acknowledged. It rarely ever works. What was he saying in the Northeast? We say shy bands get out, right? So, so people who are shy get nothing. And... I keep, it's a rule I should follow and I always forget it. <laughs> yeah, that, that is not something that we're sort of raised on, I, I think, um, in England. I think the idea of yeah, being demonstrably like, like needing something is almost an embarrassing thing. Um, whereas, yeah, here you walk up to someone and be like, I need this, uh, give it to me, please. And the please at the end isn't even required. Uh, that's just me being British instinctually. Yeah, we, we both need to be better on this. This is absolutely true. Yeah, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a long road if if we're still doing this after ten years. <laughs> anyway, Gericht erlaubt weitere Waldrohung auf Tesla Baustelle. So this is an article from Morgan Postie, a Berlin paper. The general theme of the topic is that a court has now allowed a continued felling of forest uh, at the Tesla uh, building site. Uh, Tesla are currently 
felling a pretty large area of forest to build their main factory in Europe, which is based just outside of Berlin, which is going to be be producing, I think, half a million cars a year. They are also talking about building one of their battery uh, factories, which will be the largest battery factory in the world at the end of completion. So I think... uh, 83 hectares, which apparently is 205 acres. Neither of those numbers mean very much to me for its, what they're calling, gigafactory at uh, Grunheide, south of Berlin. Do you, do you not find the phrase gigafactory the most Elon Musk kind of hyper male? Like, I don't believe there was a woman involved in the decision making behind that, 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 that word. Like, I don't believe there was, there was anyone but like a group of men who were like, Giga Factory <laughs> and sort of like shaking their fists in the air. It's such a, it just, it just smacks of like, yeah, crappy hyper masculine attitudes. But yeah, yeah, 83 hectares, 205 acres of pine forest are being felled. That's, that's not, it's not quite what you think of when you think of green Germany, right? Well, I mean, obviously, this is essentially an environmental issue. And originally, when we looked at this or started talking about this story, uh, we were caught by the idea that basically there was a court injunction on the construction because of lizards and snakes that reside in this forest. Uh, and a lot of environmental campaigners were uh, obviously raising the alarm about that and the fact that a lot of these animals are now entering their winter hibernation. So this is also the worst time of the year to do this for these animals. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of, uh, it flies in the face of what you kind of hope for uh, with a very green uh, political country. Uh, the Green Party here are an established force. They're not a, a throwaway vote as they are in, in, in a lot of other countries like back home. But yeah, a lot of conservation groups are naturally up in arms about this. So we have the, the Natural and Biodiversity Conservation Union and the Green League both having lawsuits against this action. So th- there could be further issues down the line for Tesla. So it, it, it does play into this narrative that you know in Germany, which is outwardly professing its green credentials lots of recycling, lots of green initiatives. But then the government makes some pretty wild decisions when it comes to what they're going to do. Hambach Forest is a good example. Hambach is, is, is a forest that's been basically a, a, a battleground for a, for a very long time. Uh, it's an ancient forest in the north, uh, north of Germany, North Rhine-Westphalia. Uh, or North Rhine-Westphalia, uh, no, North Rhine-Westphalia, and between Cologne and Aachen. And it's this contested area that's the ancient forest land that's been felled for uh, industrial use. And it's been, the, the clearances have been on and off again, on and off again. There's, there's been a lot of, basically they've created this treehouse network and they've been trying to clear it out. And being quite, the police have been quite aggressive about it. So mm. you've got this, this issue that maybe not a lot of people outside Germany know about, where you have this massive protest to save this this, this, this ancient forest. But then you think about things like the decision in 2010 to take to move away from nuclear power, which itself is a, is a, is a, a fine idea, mm-hmm. but it was made without really any contingency. And the contingency now is import gas from, from Russia, which doesn't create energy stability and a lot more gas turbines being used to, to, to create power. And then you have this big problem with trying to connect these massive wind farms in the north of Germany with the south. Mm. And examples I could give you of uh, like the Atomkraft, the the, the anti-atomic um, power um, movement. They have they're quite powerful here, quite strong here. And the village I used to live in 
near Nuremberg. I remember the first time I went to that city and it was uh, no atom craft, no atom craft, like we don't want it, like big signs everywhere. And then I, I, a few years later, I returned after moving away and all the signs were, we don't want any pylons. Mm -hmm. yeah, so you don't want pylons to connect you to the northern green energy, but you don't want nuclear power either. Like, what do you want? Like, what is it you want? You don't want your taxes to go up in order to put uh, energy cables underground, which would be an alternative, a very costly alternative. And it just seems like mm, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of discussion, not a lot of decision, not a lot of clarity uh, like are we are we trying to protect the environment or are we trying to destroy it are we going to use green energy or are we not going to use green energy and it kind of ends up falling into the donald trump school of environmentalism like we'll save some of it uh don't worry we'll protect some of it for you like some of this ancient forest will remain next to the factory we're building whereas yeah when romania are talking about doing similar things to ancient forests then everyone here is up in arms about that dereliction of sort of of duty of protection uh, but again like with wind turbines and all this kind of stuff you do see a lot of them here but as you say that i know a lot of people who live in villages in the area that have become sort of very militant about not having these intrusions on their village uh, they're certainly for all the benefits but they don't want it close to home and of course that's that's a difficult balance that's being faced everywhere obviously in the uk we're lucky that um, one of our main wind farms is in the middle of the north sea uh, and isn't an eyesore in the same way but of course germany is a massive nation in comparison to us in landmass and so there are plenty of places uh, where you can implement these things without disrupting too much of the uh, local community I mean, this is the thing, this is the thing that gets us. I was having this conversation with someone today is, and, and I don't want to get all, uh, all, all socialist on you, but you know, my political leanings. And I'm sure people who read my Twitter feed are aware of my political leanings, but it seems to me that we're just creating these like monarchs like Elon Musk and, um, Jeff Bezos or Zuckerberg. Uh, we're just giving them this massive pile of money, almost like they've got the, all the power and strength of a modern nation, but without any of the, the government and uh, any of the um, any of the checks and balances. And then basically they get to ride roughshod over any decisions that a nation makes. Like Elon Musk opening a gigafactory was a massive deal. Uh, certainly in, it was big deal in Britain because there was stories about how Britain was in competition for it. And, and Brexit was obviously maybe or well, Brexit may well have been one of the reasons they chose to chose to produce it in, in Germany if not the reason and yeah I just think it's it, it's sort of it's it's like you deal with the devil you know like you invite Google in or you invite uh, Musk in or you invite a Facebook or a um, Jeff Bezos and they have a hell of a lot more power over workers' rights and things like this. You know? Well, I mean, of course, the, the instincts of, of governments, whether it be local, state or federal, is, is relatively short-term. These are people on four, eight, 12-year cycles of their careers, and they just want to provide jobs uh, as quickly as possible. Uh, yeah, Tesla, if they'd agreed to, to do it in the UK, it would have been an absolute boon uh, for jobs and job creation and the future of the nation, all that kind of stuff that Boris Johnson would have rattled on about. Um, but I think, yeah, by building it in Berlin is the best way to sort of to go up against the big boys uh, when we think about the the major uh, auto firms around the world some of the big boys are indeed here and so I think it just makes it easy uh, to sort of compete uh, against those brands when you're in their backyard statement of intent made in Germany Tesla indeed you know, it's it's it, you can see the value in, massive. in that brand yeah definitely Fetish Gear Out, PPE, in. Berlin's Kit Kat Club offers COVID tests. 
venue known for its hedonism has come up with a lockdown survival strategy at 25 euros a pop. This is an article from The Guardian and it is discussing the conversion of the Kit Kat Club in Berlin into a COVID testing center. We don't live in Berlin. Like Berlin's a, psychologically is a million years away, right? To, to where we are. Yeah, so the, the Kit Kat Club wasn't really in my, on my radar until this story came out. And I honestly, I know nothing about the Kit Kat Club other than it's famous for being a sex club. So, um, Simon, what can you tell me about the Kit Kat Club? Well, I mean, yeah, I, I was no expert on this either. And I'd, I'd heard the name uh, in passing conversation about things to do in Berlin. Uh, but generally speaking, I knew nothing about this until it uh, entered the, the press with this story. And so I have had to do some research uh, about sex clubs. So my browser has had to be thoroughly scrubbed after this. Yeah. Um, so apparently it was opened in 1994 uh, by an Austrian pornographic filmmaker called Simon Thauer uh, and his life partner, Kirsten Kruger. Uh, and Kirsten is still an integral part of the club and still uh, supervises the door uh, on certain evenings. And strictly speaking, it's not a sex club. It is just a club which allows the engagement of sexual intercourse openly at the venue. Uh, so you don't have to go there to have sex, but if you choose to, it is uh, it's permissible. But as I say, the door policy is quite strict. Uh, so bouncers are very rigid on the requirements to enter. You can't just rock up in a t-shirt and a pair of jeans. You have to be visibly engaging in the culture, I guess. Uh, so requiring like fetish wear, latex, leather, kinky uh, type stuff, high style and glamour. Uh, so it's not a standard nightclub that you could accidentally find yourself in and be like, oh my God, everyone's fucking. Like, there are protections in place. Uh, but it's in uh, Kreuzberg, which is yeah one of the really coolest neighborhoods in Berlin. Uh, and it has its name based on the nightclub, uh, which was featured in the play and movie Cabaret. Uh, which, of course, is a really key part of, of German post-war culture. We've talked about this. You've managed to get another topic about sex on this bloody podcast. Yes, I have. And now I have to work out how the hell am I going to navigate it. But uh, this is how fucking naive I am. I was looking at going like, what's the Kit Kat connection? Is it something to do with chocolate? Is it something to do with... Sponsored by Nestle. <laughs> is there some kind of tie-in here? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a total loser, really, when it comes to this kind of cool like sex club culture that is totally so far beyond me um yeah well if you are looking to learn more i can highly recommend checking out their website because it was clearly designed in the heydays of 90s uh pop art on internet explorer building uh sites so it is oh it is a piece of art for that era uh, i would really recommend anyone listening to, to just check out their website oh why okay so yeah um hmm. nick has landed on it and his eyes are wide open uh, and it's not because of sex all over it. Uh, it's uh, designer. Get a designer. That's it is a graphic design nightmare. Squarespace. I can recommend Squarespace. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's wild. I mean, hey, I guess I guess people who are going to the Kit Kat Club aren't really sort of thinking about how good their website is. So no, no, they, they have they have much much more important concerns. Like, how do you get the stains out of these leather pants? I guess I would assume. But I think it's great. We talked two weeks ago about community action. Mm -hmm. And this is another example. It's not the only club to have, have offered this service. There's other clubs within a, a group of, of clubs in Berlin who are preparing mm -hmm. for a world after, 
after the vaccine where they'll have testing centers and trying to find a way of navigating this liminal period we have between no vaccine and a vaccine so that they can open the club in a safe way so you have speedy tests before you even go in the club and uh, I don't know how viable that is as a strategy but it, it does speak to like a, a community of club owners in Berlin who were mm-hmm. looking at this problem and trying to find interest and solution. And I think it's a real, yeah, it's a real example of what you can do when you start collaborating and trying to work together. But I, I get a sense that the club community in Berlin has already got that community vibe anyway. Berlin seems like a city that have a lot of different interesting communities. Well, I think for a lot of people all over the world, when they think of Berlin, one of the main reasons to go to Berlin is to experience the nightlife. It is world famous, it is, it's unique. Uh, I think with its its nightlife, very, very open-minded city that has something for everyone. And what I really like about this is, as you say, the sort of the community of clubs working together. And I think when I think of sort of the big nightclubs back in the UK, it seemed they were all always against each other, trying to uh, sort of one-up brink- brinksmanship. Whereas here, we have to say that it isn't sort of a, a truly medical approach here. These tests that they're giving are sort of more provisional thing. Uh, so they can tell you if you test positive on their test, they recommend then going and getting a proper test, the more precise polymerase chain reaction test, apparently. And that sort of gives you the real sort of you definitely do, definitely don't. But these tests aren't uh, as guaranteed as, as they might sound at first. But again, about the community, the reason this actually happened was that Christine Kruger, the woman that runs it, uh, one of her regulars was a doctor And he said to her, yeah, I know a company in Bavaria that could supply you with the PPE and the testing kit to do this. So she contacted them through her her friends. And then she was able then to bring the bouncers back on staff who obviously had been on unemployed to police the queue. And so obviously this industry is is crippled by COVID. And so for people like bouncers to be able to get back to work and and put some money in their bank account this time, it is an incredible uh, act. Uh, from, yeah, yeah. from management. Great. Um, they could have just sat home and mm. waited for it all to pass over, but they're being proactive. Uh, and as you say, it, it really speaks to community. Well, I, th- I think the, the, the group's called the Berlin Club Commission, which is this network of, of club owners and, and their supporters of the people who go to the clubs, obviously. And it does, it does remind me a little bit of, of things I've seen in Newcastle. They're not as official, but you have like all the pub pub owners seem to know each other and and certainly when there's live events mm-hmm. that, 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 that they've had in in newcastle live music being played or music weekends these groups come together to to sort of police the situation but also to make sure everyone's having a good time and and i think it's it there is elements of that in certain cities but it, it just seems like it speaks to something about berlin that the, the the sense you get of the city that it's that that they have a lot of this community action uh, they 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 fought against Google and prevented a Google campus being built and that was a community action and I think again it's just another one of these examples of of how there seems to be a lot more force of will in in cities around Germany than than I've I've seen mm-hmm. in, in other places in Europe. I mean they re- they reference in the article an interesting thing they learned from it hadn't really crossed my mind so it's not something I think of very often but they say uh, quote we can learn from the HIV epidemic and they continue saying AIDS did not stop us from having sex completely but we learned to practice safe sex. We need to develop strategies for safe clubbing. And yeah, talking about these testing opportunities, uh, the idea of apps uh, being used by clubs and night staff to have registered testing results to see if people have had their vaccine. 
these are all strategies that the club commission could use to, to reintroduce this uh, to Berlin. Uh, so yeah, fingers crossed. The, f the final quote that I have to put out here is from uh, one of their customers uh, by the name of Sebastian. I won't use the second name. And he says, I've spent some of the best hours of my life in this place. I trust the people who run it more than the German healthcare system. <laughs> And I think that's fair enough. That's a really nice takeaway <laughs> at the end. That yeah, yeah, if you are a bit bit alternative, if you don't trust the government, if you don't trust the news, then yeah, why not go to your favourite sex club uh, and and at least get an idea of, of if you are at risk uh, to others. We have that responsibility. Does that mean I've got to go find a favourite sex club? Uh, I, I don't know what the scene is like in Augsburg, but I'm sure there's something you can Google. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Maybe not. It's the, it's the, the weekend is literally around the corner, so I think now's the time to, to test the waters. Mask up in as many masks as you can, and I'm sure you'll be popular. Yeah, no, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced. Coronavirus, Germans gaining weight during pandemic. Uh, this article brought to us by DW.com Deutsche Welle. One of the things that we've all struggled with during lockdown is food. Uh, and it seems that Germans are just like me and Nick. Uh, so the study, which ran from April to August, uh, has claimed that Germans gained an average of around one kilo, uh, 2.2 pounds, uh, citing an increase in unhealthy eating, among other changes in daily behaviour, uh, as a result of pandemic-related restrictions. So, I mean, yeah, obviously daily behavior is has completely changed since before March. But yeah, the one kilo, uh, I've definitely gained and then lost uh, more than that. I think I gained nearly two and a half, nearly three kilos uh, on the first lockdown here. Uh, how did you find this, Nick? Oh, well, I mean, weight, weight, pardon the pun, is a heavy topic for me. Um so I was I was obese when I was sixteen. I was a I was twenty one stone, which is about what like one hundred and thirty, one hundred and thirty five kilos or something like that. It's it's a fair old weight for for a young person. Yeah, it's, it's, I was yeah. a big guy, big guy, and so I spent a lot of my my teenage years struggling with my weight. I still struggle with my weight. I still have like I, I say it to people quite openly because I think it's important. I feel better when I, I put it out there, you know. The thing that I see in mm. the mirror is not the thing that people see, you know. So it's a very different experience for me. Um, and yeah. I weighed myself at the beginning of August and I was exactly the same weight as I was when, when I was 16. And you say that to people and everyone goes, oh yeah, you're, you're taller, you know, and it's different. Oh, you look, you're carrying it well. And it's really, as soon as somebody mm -hmm. says that, the moment I had to buy a triple XL t-shirt, I was like, I need to solve this problem. Like quick, smart, because it's, it, it, it just digs away and you're already in a situation where your mental health is being impacted by the fact we're in lockdown the fact we don't have all the social things that we usually do especially in the summer and then I've got mm. this other monkey on my back as it were so I did what I've talked I think in the first uh, the first session we talked about chocolate and that I was not eating sugar it's been tricky in December because everything is made of sugar that's good in December but like that's been the aim is to eat le to eat less and and try and stay healthy but yeah, it's a challenge, man. It's a challenge. Uh, I mean, yeah, I say I have these weird cycles with food. Uh, my weight is is relatively constant and probably has been uh, for the last couple of years. But I have had a couple of periods in life where I've I've been too thin uh, for my size and I have been unhealthily skinny. Uh, and yeah, diet has I've been quite negligent different periods of my life. At university, my diet was just horrendous. 
real worst case scenario type thing, like no vitamins, really just processed, cheap food. Um, I've definitely come a long way since then. I, I have uh, chronic kidney disease. Uh, and one of the things uh, that can, can be an issue is things like salt uh, and my diet. So I have to, had to be more careful recently. And yeah, I, I, mm. I've definitely reaped some reward there. Uh, but my, my struggle started, I have to say, around your birthday when we were able to, to see each other at that point in, in COVID. And your, your wife uh, offered me a really delicious chocolate um, it was like a, a beautiful, high quality, 70% cacao with like a chocolate, an orange chocolate mousse and a cream inside it. And that was literally the only snack I ate for about three weeks. It cost a lot of money over that three week period to eat this luxury chocolate. Uh, the first spot where I get weight is on my, on my chest. And it's something that I've been really self-conscious of for years. Um, so yeah, as soon as I start noticing that I'm um, developing a, a fuller cup um, it's time to pull back. And so, yeah, now my snack is, uh, is clementines. The season is here, so it's just vitamin C bonanza. Yeah, one of the knock-on effects of the COVID crisis has been fewer people going to see the doctor in general, whether because of fears of picking up the virus in a busy waiting room or because of a lack of capacity. I read the article, and I think it was the Robert Koch Institute that did the study, and they said they were surprised there wasn't a larger impact on mental health in Germany. Although they noted that the sample size was too small, and they would need to do a larger study in order to measure the impact of the lockdown on mental health. But you hear you hear reports from Britain and the US about mental health. You don't always hear as much about the issue in Germany. And I know I've suffered in recent months from depression. I know others might be suffering, but they don't have a, a name to put to it. I guess I was kind of lucky. I could recognize the symptoms because I have some level of experience with depression and I could recognize the red flags, but it's not always that easy. Um, how about you? How are you doing, mate? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm doing all right. But as you say, it's, it's not been particularly easy uh, for anyone. I always kind of prided myself on, on my mental stability. Uh, I don't know if it just comes from having studied philosophy, but I always kind of thought that I was, I had the tools to sort of manage everything. And any sort of periods in life of, of extreme difficulty, I always felt like I'd sort of navigated them in a pretty healthy way. Um, but yeah, looking back on them now, I know that's not the case. And there were things that I should have addressed when I was younger. Um, but I think, yeah, men, especially, uh, English men, we, we aren't good about talking about our feelings full stop. It's something I've had to learn to do, and it's something I've learned through uh, meeting my wife. Um, most of my previous relationships have been with, uh, with English people, and then you sort of speak the same language, do the same thing emotionally and psychologically. Uh, whereas, yeah, when you are in a relationship with someone from a completely different culture, completely different background, uh, those realities are challenged more often. And, uh, yeah, it can lead to real personal development, personal growth, but it can also lead to conflict and... Feelings of, of being like, what, what am I doing here? Uh, why am I in this country abroad, away from home, um, when things would be easier back home in many ways? So yeah, I think something that we have to talk about uh, yeah, as openly as possible, as challenging as that might be. And so I think really the message I'd like to give to anyone out there is if you are struggling, um, then it's really important to keep in mind that there are people out there who want to help. Uh, whether it be reaching out to a friend, uh, a family member, someone you trust. No one is coming through this period in time unscathed uh, or at least troubled uh, by the realities of being in lockdown, having restrictions on life. Uh, so yeah, if you are 
struggling, then reach out to someone. I can really recommend it. It's the first step of uh, of making a happier life for yourself. And I think in the in the end of the day, that has to be our ultimate aim. I said to someone the other day, I was I was listening to Dave Chappelle, and he said that he said something really interesting. He was talking about the lockdown and how it's forced people to reflect on their lives and their decisions. And that reflection hasn't always created positivity. I think it's forcing people to look at their lives and decide, is this, is this what I actually wanted? Is this the house I want because I'm stuck in it? Is this the family I want because I'm stuck in it? And I think for men, especially men, it's easy or easier to, to like in a normal times to exit stage left and just bury their heads in the sand or, or bury their heads in work or a hobby or something else. But now they're sort of forced to experience their family 24 hours a day. And I think some people are finding that incredibly difficult. I mean, for me, we, well, my wife had a baby at the start of lockdown and it was so easy for me to relegate my, how I felt and my mental health to the bottom of the list of priorities, prioritizing stability over anything else, making sure that everyone was okay except myself. Until it just crept up on me suddenly and and I realized I wasn't okay and I needed help. And I really can only, I can only strongly recommend that people listen to what, what Simon has said and and seek out help where you can find it. Maybe it's a charity, maybe it's a doctor, maybe it's a friend. I was really lucky that I had a group of friends and family who had experience and could, and could help us and could support us. It's vital, especially for men, to find some way of letting that out. And you can run away, you can run away as long as you want, but eventually it's going to catch up with you. You can't really run away from it forever. Indeed. I think especially in Germany, one of the things that really impressed me when I first moved here, I uh, started working here, was that the people were really candid about the, the notion of burnout that you can be overworked, that eventually it will get you. You can't always have your nose to the grindstone. And people are really, really open about that. And that's something I'd never encountered uh, in the English workforce. But the problem is that now I think everyone's so comfortable with the notion that a lot of things get accredited to burnout. Uh, so when people do speak out about how they're feeling, it will be like, oh, you're just burnt out. You need, you need a holiday. Um, I think it, it does become a little bit, um, yeah, dismissive sometimes. Um, so I think, yeah, reaching out to people who are, who have experience is key. And yeah, there will be people around you that have experience with it. Now that I've got, yeah, I've got you, Nick, and I've got another friend who I know I can talk very candidly about these things. Um, but sometimes you don't want to cross that threshold because you're worried about how it could affect the relationship with a person long term for those of us english especially english speakers living in germany it can be hard to to find the support you need and i think a lot of people feel more comfortable speaking to native speakers native speaking counselors who maybe understand the culture a bit more understand them a bit more for they feel like they're understood a bit more and mental health is one of those things that isn't isn't really addressed so so openly as it is perhaps in the us or uh, to a certain extent in britain and it might be hard to find those those groups that you need and i think simple maybe something as simple as a google search of your town and like selbs hilfer grouper maybe or just going to your doctor and, and and telling them how you feel and asking for support there might be a local gesundheitshaus 
or even at the Burger Bureau, you might find there's information on contacts that you can find professional help that you, you might need if, if you feel that that's what it is that's going to help you. Professionals are available, as Nick mentioned, charities, there are lots of services. Um, yeah, take the first step. Um, like, it's a last resort, it's an ultimate last resort. Like, I would say, like, reach out, reach out to, to us, you know, reach out to the podcast via email or like cat, get us on Twitter. I, I'm really lucky that we've, we've constructed this, this community of like really lovely people who are also really helpful. And it's one of those things where I might not be able to help you, but I'm, I'm pretty sure we could find someone who's got some really useful information about seeking out mental health support in Germany. So seriously, don't be a stranger. Don't just sit on it. Don't think that you're on your own because I think we're all, we're all feeling it at the moment. And we, we, we should support each other, we should help each other, and that's something that I think quite strongly about, and it's certainly an ethos that I think is really important about, about the activity on 40% German or within the podcast or within me and Simon. German delivery driver drove without license for 40 years. A 67-year-old man has been caught driving without a license. When pressed by police, he admitted to having no valid license for more than 40 years. This is an article from Deutsche Welle. And yeah, th somehow this does not surprise me. I have spent a lot of time driving around Germany. Somehow it doesn't surprise me that there's people on the road who have never had a driving license. We talk, that, I mean, for the British mentality when it comes to German driving is just autobahn. How sexy is the autobahn? <laughs> Let's drive real fast on the autobahn. But the reality of driving on the autobahn is it's, it's fucking terrifying. It's really, really intense. You drive at 80 miles an hour in Britain, or 70 miles an hour is the speed, sorry, 70. 70, to, to be legal, yeah. 70 miles an hour apologies uh, so 70 miles an hour and you you think all oh, right 80 is fast like talk about 120 going past you in a porsche you know talk about 150 you know i know people who've gone 200 kilometers an hour on an empty autobahn um people take advantage but you would hope those people have the necessary paperwork uh, this 67 year old gentleman it turns out had not only been a delivery driver and 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 had no license but he'd spent 40 years just without a license and it boggles the brain how he's managed to get that far without ever having to sit a test i mean it's, it's incredible that he managed to gain employment as a delivery driver without having to physically show his driving license that is mind-boggling um yeah a real lapse uh in certification uh, from whoever employed him i think it's it well, actually, in saying that, knowing how a company like um, Hermes or Hermes, as they might say in, in England, that their business model is basically pays for as little as possible, forces much of the cost of delivery onto the person delivering, uh, whether it's because they have to pay for their own vehicle, pay for their own petrol. They're not paid a lot of money full stop. And it doesn't surprise me that they wouldn't, like if they're not going to pay people properly, if they're not going to supply them with equipment properly, why in God's name would they even bother to check their documentation? I'm sure there's, there's, there's a lot of missing documentation, you know, in, in these instances from companies that just seem to not really care that much. You kind of hope it would be more than just clicking on an, on an e-form, do you have a driving license, yes or no? Yeah, it, it's pretty bizarre. Um, but obviously we have the, the, the interesting uh, chemistry here that uh, I've done two uh, driving tests. I've had to take my license in, in England uh, and in the US and, and you learned for the first time in Germany. 
So yeah, I mean, what was that like as an experience being an Englishman who at the time spoke very, very limited German? No German. No German. <laughs> no German. Okay. I think I'd been in the country for about three years and my German was incredibly limited. Certainly wasn't up to the standards and I had to do a lot of, a lot of vocab learning because, and I understand why you wouldn't want to sit a test for 40 years because the first part, the first thing you have to do for a German driving license is I think it's 13 hours or 13 sessions of theory mm -hmm. before you even get in a car. And it is watching videos or talking about roundabouts for an hour. And bear in mind, the average age of, of sort of young drivers in Germany is like 17, 16, 17. They're very young. I was late 20s in a room full of basically school kids learning to drive. And it was excruciating they would ask us questions and I wouldn't understand necessarily what they were saying. And <laughs> I'd have to sort of run away the next session and do some like reading and try and improve my German. But then when it came to actually sitting the test, I had the coolest driving instructor I could have ever <laughs> asked for. Ex-Bundeswehr, ex-military. He uh, had been in the Bundeswehr during the 2006 World Cup, had a, an affinity and a love for the English football fans, which impressed me because I was like, I've seen England football fans. They're not, they're not anything that you would call like cuddly and lovable, uh, rather hooligan and unlovable maybe. But he was super supportive, super nice, joked with us, had a really good sense of humor. But yeah, it was, I mean, it was tough. They do teach you a lot about speed driving and how you should drive on the autobahn, where you should be looking, uh, distance. They give you like mathematical equations to, to measure how you would your distance by how many of the meter sticks you're passing on the autobahn and so the, the, there's a lot of Aww. a lot of detail there's a lot of questions about how the engine functions that was one of the scarier parts was they the test might revolve around him just pointing at stuff in the car and just saying what's that and and that that was quite unnerving luckily he didn't and i passed first time which i thought was almost impossible um of course the driving instructor did did take the piss out of me at the end and he said uh he said oh well it's, sadly you've you've failed and i was like what and like, i was like sure i'd passed that's so sure i'd passed and he was like ah oh, only joking <laughs> and i was like this is no time to develop a sense of humor you know and it sounded like you really learnt how to drive uh learn be the operative verb I, I mean i think for a lot of english people especially in theory you buy a book you buy a dvd or you do it online and you just yeah, repeat, repeat, repeat until you know the answers. Um, there isn't much of a focus on really learning the theory, it's just learning the test. I know a lot of people don't do very well on it because it's not really part of learning to drive in the traditional sense in England. Uh, and yeah, I do think that we, we need to focus more on that theory uh, because, yeah, there is a lot of physics at play and having an understanding of that is certainly a positive thing. I mean, driving, driving isn't a, a big issue if you live in a major city. The public transport's usually pretty good, but if you live in a village, you, are really, you really need to learn to drive. And I was surprised when I first came here and met my wife's family and saw their village, how many of her friends drove compared to my friends, how many of her younger brother's friends drove like everyone seemed to have either access to a car or had the ability to drive and with my friendship group certainly at university or just back in in england most people i knew didn't drive because they had no real need to but i think it's it's a must if you live in the village if you don't have a car and you live in a village then a like you're gonna have a real difficult time i wanted to quickly come back to that idea that you spoke about at the start about driving on the autobahn being intense 
And that's really the, the thing that I've noticed. I mean, I learned on British motorways where obviously 70 miles an hour up to 80, you're relatively safe from, from prosecution at that point. But you don't really have to concentrate in the same way as you do here, where you know that there is a real chance that someone in the aforementioned Porsche or Audi can suddenly, as if out of nowhere, be behind you and be coming at great speed. Uh, so there is a, a real heightened sense of danger and heightened reality of danger. Whereas when I was driving in America, there is no fast lane. Uh, as far as I could notice on the West Coast, at least, you would drive for hours and see people just sitting in the middle lane. And you don't have to pay attention because nobody's going very fast with low speed limits. Everyone's on cruise control, uh, like in mobile living rooms on wheels and their massive SUVs. It's just a very, very different style and approach and requirement for mental agility. But you would think, you would think if, you would think, I mean, going back to the story, you'd think that, that this kind of thing is almost an impossibility, but that, that someone could, could never have been checked, could, could be in a car driving on the autobahn um, at any speed that they choose in those sections where you can drive um, without a limit. But apparently... In July this year, a 69-year-old woman was alleged to have been driving without a license for 39 years, and she was discovered only when she hit another vehicle in a car park and drove away without giving her details. And you're like, what the hell? Like, how are we in a situation where where people are driving, having accidents, and there's no that they've managed to slip through the net, as mm-hmm. it were? I mean, there are deterrents, steep fines, and you can even be imprisoned for it. Uh, so it is a serious thing. But uh, yeah, I mean, people sort of skirting by for years and years without having their license checked, I can kind of understand. Um, but we have a couple of more famous examples here. One uh, in 2014 was the foot- German footballer Marco Reus, um, who uh, was fined after being caught driving his Aston Martin, even though he didn't have a license. Why wasn't it a Rolls Royce? How, why couldn't he just stick to the bit? It should have been a Rolls Royce. <laughs> why is he driving an... Anyway, yeah, sorry. <laughs> but what was interesting uh, about these uh, is that in Germany, you're fined in line with your earnings. Uh, and so Marco actually was fined over half a million euros uh, for this infringement. He then managed to get his license in 2016 uh, and turned up to training in what was described as a modest Opel Insignia, uh, so he realized that an Aston Martin was probably the quickest way to get pulled over. And he just went middle of the road, Opel insignia. So you reckon if this bloke had been driving some kind of fancy car, someone might have stopped him before now? Uh... Absolutely. Just last night, I was watching some sort of police interceptor show here on German TV. And it was from like the, the early 90s. And this policeman saw a uh, an S-Class Mercedes drive past. And he was like, that one, the S-Class. And it's like, that's a top-of-the-range Mercedes, expensive car. They, they targeted the car. And then when he drove past the guy, he looked in, saw him, and then turned to the camera and said, well, you know, you can't tell by looking at people whether they're guilty or not. And it's like, that's how you started this pursuit. <laughs> you yeah. literally said, that Mercedes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, there are, there, are, there are problems here. But I mean, I've never had my, my licenses checked by a policeman on the road. I've never been pulled over. I did get pulled over once in America. Yeah, I've never been pulled over either, but then um, driving around in a Volkswagen up doesn't really attract as much attention, you know? This is the perfect covert car. Like, this is the, the street racer that um, underground Germany needs. The, like, nobody's going to pull over the up. They pull me over to go, like, you sure you don't want a better car? <laughs> <laughs> 
so um yeah so guys thank you for listening to decades from home uh, again we're really really pleased that you've you've decided to join us like i said last week we are new and there's certain things you can do as an audience to really help our podcast grow one of those things is to rate us on itunes write a review on itunes it really has an impact pushes us up the rankings people can see it we've already we're already doing quite well but the more support the better and again it would be it would just be a sign of whether you you're liking the podcast or not if you we obviously we take questions if you've got questions please do tweet at the moment uh, the update from the at decades from home twitter account is not good it's still uh, uh, still blocked it may well still be blocked we might have to set up a, a totally different account but luckily you can still tweet me at at 40 german uh, and you can take a look again at, at 40 german.com got lots of new articles we had a great article from a guest post uh last week that a lot of people enjoyed about dating in germany we've got a lot of stuff on there about uh, yeah just what it's like to live here the experiences yeah so check that out when you get if you get a chance and yeah as ever thanks again and we'll talk to you again next week